Ladies and gentlemen, the tiny DevOps guy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Tiny DevOps, where we like to talk about dev and ops on small teams and small companies. Uh, I'm your host, Jonathan Hall. And today we're talking about a topic that uh, should be exciting, I think. We're talking about Kubernetes and how to decide where you as a small team, small company, should host Kubernetes. I have a guest today, Andy Suderman. Did I say that right? Yep. Great. Thanks, Andy, for coming on. It's great to have you here. Uh, would you do a brief introduction? Tell us what you do, uh, maybe where you work, and, and maybe why you know something about Kubernetes. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me today. Um, so yeah, I've been working with Kubernetes for about five years now, I think. Uh, I've lost track about a year ago on exactly how long it's been. But, uh, you know, I came from a sysadmin background, building networks as a kid with my dad, and um, did a lot of sysadmin work at a company in Denver that did web conferencing software. Um, and our team got slashed in half, and we were forced to kind of reevaluate our priorities. And so started working in Kubernetes. I uh, got the opportunity for the next year and a half to really just focus on that, build out a, a, a production product running in Kubernetes. Um, and then after that, I, I left and I came to this company that I work at now called Fairwinds. And uh, all we do is, is Kubernetes all day long. So I spent the first couple of years working um, just directly for customers, running their infrastructure in Kubernetes. And in the last year or so, I, I've been taking more of a leadership role um, as our, our senior technical resource. Great. So... You say you work with Kubernetes all day long. So are, are you essentially like the company that people outsource their Kubernetes management to? Is that how that works? Yeah, we have done that in the past. Um, over the last couple of years, we have begun to focus on and are focused on building software to help teams run Kubernetes um, specifically. So okay. the management piece is definitely something we do. We still know how to do it. We help people get successful in Kubernetes, but we are truly focused on building software that helps people to be successful. Wonderful. So that, that really puts you in a unique position, I think, to, to help answer the question for today. Um, before we before we dive in and just directly answer that question, though, of which platform should we use for Kubernetes, uh, I'm, I'm curious, uh, maybe if you want to talk, of course, we have the, the big three. There, there's many ways to run Kubernetes, but the big three cloud providers, Google, Amazon, and, and Azure. Azure. Mm -hmm. um, what's your experience with these three? Uh, do you have any, just sort of off the top, uh, pros or cons from the something that attracts you to one or or, or the other? Yeah, uh, I've definitely worked in all three of the big ones. I've also worked in DigitalOcean on a personal level, so I've done a lot of stuff there um, in personal products. And I also did uh, an evaluation of Linode's um, Kubernetes offering, uh, not Actually, that was probably a while ago now. But anyway, um, you know, first takes, I, I started out in Amazon. That was where the company was when I was there. It Amazon felt the most like a traditional data center to me uh, when I first started working in it. And so that's what really kind of spoke to me as, as a former or reformed sysadmin, as they say. Um, <laughs> but uh, coming to Fairwinds, I got to have lots of experience in both GKE and AKS, uh, both of those platforms. And they all have their pros and cons. Um, if I had to pick one right off tomorrow, I would probably stick with Amazon, but it really, like if totally Greenfield coming out of nowhere, that, that might be what I picked. But um, I can't say necessarily that I, I would absolutely pick one over the other. Um, there's mm -hmm. so many factors that go into that decision and so many pros and cons to each one. Yeah, and we'll dig into some of those here in just a minute. 
So I my, my experience, I started uh, with Google uh, and Google, GKE. In fact, mm-hmm. I actually started playing with uh, GKE, I think, before Amazon even had uh, theirs available yet. You know, Google was, the fir- of course, the first... Uh, they more or less invented Kubernetes, depending on how you want to define invention, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes sense that they were there first. But everybody else is catching up so fast. And, and uh, of course, Google knew that was going to happen when they open sourced it and, and made it a community project. Right. Um, br- briefly, what, are, what would you say are like the, the top two or three reasons that you would choose Amazon? Uh, and, and yeah, let's just start with that. Let's just start with Amazon. What are the top two or three reasons that you like Amazon for, for Kubernetes? Um, you know, I, I've sort of mentioned one already, the, um, the structure of, you know, networking and VPCs in Amazon really likens itself very much to it, you know, the older data center mindset. And so if you're coming from that world, it's much easier to wrap your head around in my opinion. Um, and so I really like that aspect of it. As far as the managed Kubernetes offering, you know, EKS has come a long way. I also started in, you know, GKE before Amazon had an offering. We were using COPS on AWS back mm-hmm. before EKS existed. And EKS has come a long way. It is really a lot better than it used to be. I know there are still pain points around, you know, managing EKS and upgrading EKS. Um, but with the advent of managed node groups um, and things like that, it's really starting to catch up in terms of, of feature set. And in Amazon, you have, you know, one of the biggest things to think about when choosing any cloud provider is all the surrounding services, right? It's not just Kubernetes. You're not running everything mm-hmm. in your Kubernetes cluster, most likely. Uh, in fact, in most cases, I won't recommend that you do that. Um, and so right. the surrounding services in Amazon, I mean, RDS is a great product. or Aurora is a great product. Um, there's just, and there's a, a huge lift, uh, sorry, a huge list of services uh, that you can use in Amazon around your Kubernetes cluster that are fantastic. Right. Um, so that, that, that Probably be the top two there, I think. Okay. Uh, and if somebody asked you the same question, let's just do the other two. Let's do Google and Azure. What are the benefits that each of those provide? Yeah. Uh, I mean, GKE uh, and Google, really easy to get started in GKE. I mean, it's super easy to get going in GKE. Autopilot is a, a very promising new thing with GKE. If you're willing to accept all the guardrails that it puts around everything, I really like the concept. Uh, of what they do there. Um, you know, the networking in GKE is, one might say easier, but it's also a little bit more obscure as to what act- what is actually happening in your network. Um, and so if, if it's something that you're comfortable with learning, it can be a really easy way to do a lot of the networking pieces. Um, and then, uh, you know, just the length of time that it's been around. GKE's been around. Been, they've been around the block, right? Uh, and there's a lot of experience there, and you can't really put a price on that, in my opinion. So, mm-hmm. um, And then, so that covers GKE. Let's talk about Azure AKS. That's a little bit tougher one. We haven't done a lot of Azure. We haven't done a lot of AKS. I will, I will fully admit it's not my favorite platform. Um, there are benefits to it. But I think they're mostly outside of Kubernetes specifically. I think if you're a big uh, Active Directory shop, you're already using Active Directory. That's a great reason to go Azure because it's it's going to be familiar to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a Windows sysadmin before I was a, a Linux admin. And I can see how if I was still in that world, um, the Azure ecosystem might speak to me. 
as you know, someone who spent the last five years primarily in AWS and GKE, I find Azure to be extremely difficult uh, to keep up with. And so, if it's that's not where your expertise lies, if you don't have a need to run, you know, Windows nodes in your cluster, which you can do in any cloud, which you can do in AWS. I'm not actually sure if you can do that in GKE. Um, I haven't uh, tried myself, but um, you know, if if you don't have those, I would suggest going with one of the other two. Azure's going to be a big shift um, there. And I know there's a lot of other reasons to use Azure. Um, there are some compliance pieces that fit nicely into AKS and Azure um, if you have those requirements. And so I hesitate to to issue blanket statements about any one cloud provider because they really do all have their pros and cons, but I, I would put Azure at the bottom of my, my list, quite frankly. As it relates specifically to Kubernetes, which is of course yes. the topic for today. Yeah. Yes, yes. So um, I, I'm really curious to hear a little bit more about, uh, you started to talk about this a little bit with uh, AWS about the management and, and node upgrades, because this is always one of the pain points. If you start Googling, which cloud provider should I choose? These are the sort of pain points that people are always talking about. But if you're not familiar with Kubernetes, if, if you're if you're just thinking of starting to use Kubernetes, for example, this this kind of sounds like nonsense. What are they talking about? Can you spell out a little bit to, to somebody who's listening who who hasn't been using Kubernetes for years? What are we talking about when we talk about node upgrade pains and stuff like that? Sure, sure, I can talk about that a little bit. So, in any managed service uh, for Kubernetes, what they're going to give you is what's called the control plane, and so those are the pieces that orchestrate your cluster. That includes the API server, the controller manager, and all the various other pieces that make Kubernetes work. And depending on your cloud provider, you have to attach worker nodes to this control plane in different ways. And so the worker nodes are where you're actually going to run your workloads. This is where your pods, which contain your containers, are going to run. And so each cloud provider has kind of its own way of managing those nodes or those pools of nodes um, that you're going to run your workloads on. In the early days of EKS, the only option to attach nodes was via um, some relatively complex um, cloud formation and scripts that they would give you that you could use. And then EKS CTL made by Weaveworks became a thing, and that made things a little bit easier. Um, and But still, you have this weird detachment of your nodes from your control plane because like the if you go into the EKS cluster, uh, console, it wouldn't even show you what nodes were connected to your cluster. It had no concept of that. Mm -hmm. um, and so you would click to upgrade your cluster in EKS and it would upgrade your control plane to the next version of Kubernetes. But your nodes are still whatever your launch template for your nodes came up as originally. So say I just clicked the button to upgrade my cluster to Kubernetes 1.20, my nodes may still be running 1.19, which is fully supported by Kubernetes. N minus one is the, the supported path, but you really need want to get your nodes up to the next level so that you can continue on this upgrade process. And that's where the complexity typically comes in with upgrades because now I need to I need to roll a new launch template so that my new nodes come up with a new version and I need to have a, a a way of moving my workloads onto these new nodes. And there's different strategies for that. Um, you know, we typically double the number of nodes, let the new ones come up and then slowly drain off the old nodes and let the workloads move. And there's even further complexity in that that I won't get into here, but um, that's what we're talking about there. Now, when, yeah. you, when you go to a, a provider like GKE, 
they have more of a concept of managed node pools. So when you create a GKE cluster, they ask you questions about your node pool. You know, you have to create a node pool initially with the cluster, and they really do a nice job of managing the connection between the two. And EKS has recently introduced, uh, I don't I hesitate to say recently, EKS has introduced this concept of managed node pools. I honestly haven't had much personal hands-on experience with it, but I know we're using it. And I've had a lot of great reviews about it from, from various people. And that really eases the uh, burden of managing those nodes. You, st you still said that getting started, you feel like GKE is easier. You want to explain a little bit more about what you mean by that? If it sounds like AWS is catching up. What, where is it still easier on the Google side? Um, you know, one of the, the tricky pieces of any cloud providers managed Kubernetes is authentication. Uh, and so when you spin up a cluster, you have to be able to authenticate to it. Um, AWS has made this relatively easy when you get going because they automatically allow your user to connect to the cluster as an admin. But in an environment where you're using um, assume roles and things like that. It gets really tricky to manage this config map that controls your auth. In GKE, the IAM that you use to access your Google account is directly tied to your authentication into the cluster. And so that, that mapping is much easier to uh, understand and control. Uh, and there are actual IAM rules in G IAM roles in GCP that give you permissions in the cluster. They're not super fine grained, but they do exist and you can control which users have access to the cluster. And there's a relatively straightforward G cloud command to connect to that cluster using, um, you know, to get a kube config so that you can connect to your cluster via kubectl. So that's one thing that makes it easier. Um, the node pool management is another thing. You know, it's relatively straightforward to add new node pools, remove old node pools, change the size of your node pools. You get uh, a lot of things built in with GKE that you don't in other cloud providers. Uh, and this is changing as well a little bit, but, you know, in, in the last, you know, when, when GKE and EKS were first starting to compete, GKE had, you know, metric server and cluster autoscaling built in to the ecosystem. So you didn't have to manage those pieces. You just had to say, I want, you know, this minimum number of nodes, this maximum number of nodes. So, you know, keep it somewhere in there and allow the cluster to scale automatically. Um, you know, your metrics were automatically available. Um, what other stuff? I mean, if you want to do service mesh, GKE has a, a checkbox to get your Istio control plane installed. Not that that's necessarily the best way to do it, but if you want to try it out, <laughs> kick the tires on it, it's a nice, easy way to just, you know, try out some of those features. So. Nice. Yeah, good good summary there. Uh, you, you touched on autoscaling. Um, how does that differ? I mean, of course, Kubernetes has its own concept of autoscaling, but you also want to tie that to your node autoscaling, if, if possible, if you're in the cloud. That's one of the big advantages uh, of using Kubernetes. Uh, is there any meaningful difference across the cloud providers when it comes to auto-scaling your node pools? Um, not really, no. Not at least the way that we typically tend to do it. And so, you know, I'll just elaborate on that very quickly. But your typical method of auto-scaling your node pools is you... Um, First, you set your resource requests on all of your pods, right? So that it, the scheduler that's scheduling those pods knows where to put them. And then it will you will eventually get to a point where you try to schedule a pod that doesn't fit on any node. And so that pod will go into a pending state 
And uh, in AWS, we have the cluster autoscaler that watches for those events. And then it looks at the topology of the cluster and it looks at the, uh, the Amazon autoscaling groups that it has available to modify. And it says, oh, your node will fit, your pod will fit on a node if I scale out this group. And so it will add another node to that group by modifying the autoscaling group, uh, the desired capacity of that. So that uh, same concept applies in GKE. Your node pools will scale exactly the same way. I don't have to run a cluster autoscaler in that cluster to do that for me. It will happen automatically, but it's the same concept. Mm -hmm. uh, and Azure, we run it the same way, I believe, with the cluster autoscaler in Azure as well. So um, really not any meaningful differences on how we scale the cluster there. Okay, good. One big question everybody always asks is price. Is there a meaningful difference in price across these providers when it comes to Kubernetes? Oh, you know, I'm not sure. I've looked deeply enough into the price recently to tell you for sure. You know, in it, originally it was, you know, the GKE control plane was completely free, which was a huge add, uh, value add there. Uh, they have since started charging an hourly price for the, the control plane. So there is a cost there. I know in EKS, if you want a highly available control plane, you're effectively paying for all three master nodes. And so my guess is that the price is slightly higher, but I haven't actually done a direct evaluation of that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the control plane pricing is usually your lowest cost. You're going to be running anywhere from, you know, 10 to hundreds of nodes or thousands of nodes in some cases. And so your workload really quickly becomes your cost center there. And so, um, and, and quite frankly, if you're keeping your data outside of the cluster in a managed service, usually other pieces outside of the cluster itself are going to be your biggest price points. Mm -hmm. uh, and so then you have to start thinking about things like transit costs for your networking and, um, you know, the cost of your database and the cost of your data stores. And that's usually where we see the largest amount of price. So, um, I know it's a not a straightforward answer to a fairly simple question, but uh, that's that's where I'm at there. That's fair enough. I, I think it's a it's a difficult question to answer anyway, uh, just because the different providers have different prices. For some, charge more for memory; others for disk; others for CPU, and ingress ingress and egress. You know, so there's there's so many variables in there. It's really hard to to give a, a direct answer of which one's cheapest because it depends. But uh, definitely. You mentioned earlier uh, when, we, when we started off about if you're already using a service on another provider, like RDS, for example, then that can be a strong reason to go with that provider for your Kubernetes. What if I'm really tied to RDS, but for some reason I want to run Kubernetes on Google? What are the complications that are going to come up there, aside from obviously the, the network traffic across providers? It, it, is that something I should probably shy away from or are there reasons to do that? What, what am I getting myself into if I do that? Mm, that's an interesting question. You know, us, if, if we put aside the obvious, you know, connectivity and networking issues, you know, um, and we also put aside the cost issue of sending our data, you know, across uh, the boundary there and potentially incurring various network transit costs from both cloud providers for that. Um, I, I, you know, there's not really any other major complication there than that. That is the major complication that I can think of. Um, mm -hmm. You are going to have a little bit of, you know, depending on how you're doing your authentication to your database, right? Uh, you may have some issues there with IAM. 
uh, being able to access the database instance. But if it's a database and a standard database engine, you should be able to provision users in that database and, and handle that issue. So um, I would generally shy away from it just because of the complexities of the networking and the potential incursion of costs and the incursion of you know the issues of uh, network topology and potential high latency between your database and your workload. Um, that the, there are obviously other ways to solve that with, you know, transit gateways and direct connects and, and things like that. But, um, it just adds a large amount of complexity. And so if you don't have a valid or a strong business case for wanting to run your workloads in one cloud and keep your data in another, then I would definitely shy away from that. Right. Right. Keep it simple is, is probably good advice here, right? Almost always good advice. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when we're working on, on, a, on a small company uh, or small team and uh, probably just getting started with Kubernetes. Uh, keep things as simple as possible uh, and save yourself some hassle. So let's, let's try to summarize this up a little bit. Um, we've already hinted at some, some solid answers here, but uh, if, we could, if we could give the listeners, you know, if, if, if you're listening just to this part of the podcast, you just came for the answer, what are the what's our litmus test here? I, I, I'm going to try to summarize. Tell me if I'm wrong. If you're using Windows uh, nodes, probably use Azure. Is that is that yeah. a fair statement? Yeah. So that one's easy for you. If you're a Windows shop, Azure is your is your go-to. Definitely. If you already have AWS experience, then AWS is probably the way to go. Is that a fair Definitely. statement? Yep. If you don't have either of those, if you're not a Windows shop and you don't have AWS experience. I think there's a bigger question mark here. What, what what would you say in that situation? Um, barring all other concerns, use GK, GKE, um, quite frankly. Um, okay. Yeah. There you have it, folks. That's the quick and simple answer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> uh, part of well, me cringes at uh, reducing everything that far, but that it is a good summary, and I, w I would I would stand by that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, great. Uh, this has been a short and sweet episode, but but is there anything else you'd like to add? I mean, what what considerations should we make? Because uh, of course, when we're, when you're choosing a platform, of course, theoretically, Kubernetes is provider agnostic, and you can, in theory, move your services from GKE to AWS in the future. But that's always much easier said than done. So we're we're kind of marrying ourselves to a platform when we make this choice. What long term implications? What long term considerations should people uh, take into account? when making this choice? If, if it's not just about what are we ready for today, if we're looking into two, three, five years in the future? Yeah, I mean, I, I always try to take a business-oriented approach to these questions. Um, you know, what what is your business model? What are the things that you're going to need in the future as far as services around Kubernetes? And also look at what are you getting from a support perspective? Is there a... Um, provider that you're looking to work with, you know, as far as, you know, contracting parts of your, your stack out or, you know, getting some support in those areas, or do they have expertise in one of those? Is that going to be part of your long-term model going forward? And, um, you know, really thinking about everything around Kubernetes, because like you said, Kubernetes is agnostic. It runs everywhere. I can run my Kubernetes workloads just about anywhere. I've helped companies move from, Amazon to Google uh, for various business reasons, but they had other business cases for making that switch. And so really think about 
what are the other things you need around your Kubernetes ecosystem to make that choice of cloud provider? Because at the end of the day, all the managed cloud providers are going to be nearly equivalent at mm -hmm. some point. And so think about all the other pieces first. Okay. So the real simple answer here is Kubernetes shouldn't be your decision maker anyway. Yeah, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry to disappoint everybody listening. We thought it was easy and now it's not, but uh, still educational. <laughs> Nothing's easy in this industry for sure. Right. Well, Andy, thanks a lot for coming on. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we sign off? I mean, always love to do a plug for our software, uh, if that's all right Please, here. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, if you are venturing into Kubernetes, you're running multiple clusters, you have multiple teams deploying into your cluster, there's a lot of different ways you can um, break that setup in Kubernetes. It is not a simple ecosystem. And so uh, Fairwinds, the company that I work for, uh, our platform Insights can help you um, enforce those best practices uh, and also uh, detect where you're missing on those best practices in your clusters. So feel free to take a look at that at uh, fairwinds.com slash insights. And um, also I'm available just about anywhere where Kubernetes is popular. So the Kubernetes Slack, we have a community open source Slack as well. And uh, I have a Twitter, but I don't respond to it. So. Okay, that sounds like my Twitter. <laughs> Great. Right. Uh, well, thank you so much. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Mm -hmm. If people are interested in reaching out directly to you uh, to, for questions, what's the best way to contact you? Uh, yeah, I'm available in the Kubernetes Slack or the CNCF Slack. Those are probably the two best places to get a hold of me. Okay, great. Thank you, Andy, for coming on. It's been a pleasure, an educational experience, and we'll see you on Slack. Thanks for having me. All right, cheers. Bye. This episode is copyright 2021 by Jonathan Hall, all rights reserved. Find me online at jhall.io. Theme music is performed by Riley Day.